Hello, and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and public sector unions. And Richard, as we're recording this, the Supreme Court has just a few days ago heard oral arguments in a pretty high-profile case called Janus v. AFSCME. AFSCME is the acronym for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, a public sector union. And even before we get into the legal analysis of this, we should talk about sort of the policy underpinnings. The plaintiff here, a gentleman by the name of Mark Janus, was a public sector worker in Illinois, and he has brought suit against the union because he is required to pay something uh, referred to as agency fees, not a household phrase. So why don't you start off by explaining to us what agency fees are and how we got into a world where they were a component of uh, public sector unions. It's actually a rather complicated answer to the question of what an agency fee is because it depends upon the peculiar structure of collective bargaining for both private and public unions in the United States. Starting in 1935, the National Labor Relations Act, dealing only with private unions, created the following collective bargaining arrangements. What it did is it said that a union, if it won an election, would represent all of the workers in that particular bargaining unit, whether or not they had voted for the union and owed them a duty of fair representation to treat them well. On the other side, uh, the labor statutes say that the employer is under a duty to bargain in good faith with the union. And what this meant in effect is that no individual worker was in a position to negotiate his or her contract outside of the union. Uh, The position of the dissenters in both public and private unions is always very problematic. And once public unions were adopted at the state level starting in the 1960s, uh, there was a question as to whether or not the the dissenters from the union could opt out, and the answer was yes. Uh, But they were also required to pay what was known as a fair share or agency fee in order to support the union activities, even even though these people were not members of the union. And uh, this arrangement, of course, was very uncomfortable. And in 1977, in a case called the Bood versus the Detroit Department of Education, what happened was a Bood challenged this particular system, uh, saying that compelled speech, which is what the union was doing when it forced him to pay money into the dues to do something which he disagreed with, were in violation of the First Amendment. The union came back with the argument that either we get money from all the people in the unit, whether or not they join, we're not going to be able to discharge our functions because of the problem of free riders. And when the court was faced with the tension between free riders on the one hand and compelled speech on the other hand, what it did is it came up with the solution of splitting the baby. And it said to the extent that the fees are going to be used in order to support direct negotiation, enforcement, and interpretation of the contract with the particular employer um, or the public union district, uh, under those circumstances, the fees were valid. But to the extent that the union was going to use those fees for its own political purposes, uh, the free speech right now became more important. And so they said those fees had to be cut out. There's now a difficult question of figuring out which agency fees can be collected and which not. The rough approximation today is roughly about 75% to 80% of the fees in most cases are designated by the union as bargaining fees. And the smaller amount is the opt-out fees. And under the current rule, generally, 
it turns out that the uh, dissenting worker who's outside the union in an agency shop has to request that his dues not be collected for those purposes. That free rider argument that you mentioned earlier, we should make explicit what the unions are saying because this is central to the case that they're making in this case that essentially if you don't have these agency fees in place, the incentive will be for public sector workers to reap all of the benefits that come from the union's collective bargaining activities while keeping the – while the individuals keep their money and don't actually pay for any of the services that the union is providing. Is that argument persuasive to you, Richard? This is one of the most recurrent arguments, not only here but everywhere else, whenever there's a collective bargaining problem or a collective action problem. And nobody can say that it's false, but the issue is ever is a little bit more complicated than that simple characterization says. The first thing to note is that if you actually opt out of the union, you are not a pure free rider. Unions make collective decisions, union members have votes, and union members have certain participation rights. You take the position of a free rider, and it turns out that the union may adopt a policy which you find less attractive than the one which would be used if you were there. So that Secondly, when you're dealing with this, there's also a real problem about conflicts of interest. There are some people who not only want to drop out of the unions, they wouldn't even join the union if you were to give them the membership for fee. Because there's always a conflict of interest. So, for example, in a public union, suppose it turns out that there's a shortage of science teachers and an abundance of English teachers, which is actually quite common in some districts. If the union decides that it's going to negotiate a flat rate for all teachers based on seniority, the science teachers are going to feel aggrieved and the English teachers are going to feel thrilled. Well, if somebody believes that there's a serious conflict of interest, they're going to say, I'm not a free rider when I get out of this thing. You're basically making me subsidize the other people. And so therefore, it turns out that the situation is much more complicated than it would otherwise be. And the union says, but we're under a duty to bargain in good faith for everybody inside the union, which is true. And the other guy comes back and says, I don't know how you make that operational. Because does that mean you do respect the differential based on relative demand or that you ignore it or that you compromise it? So there are a lot of people in effect who are extremely uneasy. And then there are many people who said, the reason I don't want to join the union is because I think public unions are just a public disgrace. I have no other way to teach except to be a member of the union. But the moment I pay dues in order to support their their non-political functions, I'm strengthening an institution that I really don't like. And frankly, I don't want to be a free rider. I don't want to have a union at all. Uh, so the argument on these particular points, it's not that, in fact, there are some free rider problems. It's just that there are a lot of other complications that go along with those free rider problems as well. Richard, most of the legal and policy analysis from the right on this case has been that the court should overturn Abood and get rid of the agency fees regime. One exception to that, though, is Eugene Volokh, the uh, UCLA law professor and noted legal blogger, who wrote recently at Reason, I'll give you the quote here, I don't think there's any First Amendment problem with compelled payments of union agency fees at all. The government can constitutionally require people to pay money to the government in taxes, money that the government can then use for ideological purposes, e.g. supporting a war, opposing racism, promoting environmentalism, and so on. Likewise, the government can constitutionally require people to pay money to unions, money that the unions can then use for ideological purposes. What's your reaction to that analysis? 
Woo! It's really I think, a little bit over the top. Um, the compelled speech argument under these circumstances is basically a completely eliminated, and the argument is, well, there's compelled speech whenever the government acts on your behalf. Uh, but there is a huge structural distance, and this goes to the question of why do we have union democracy at all? And in fact, uh, Volek puts the central question right up front. Uh, why do we have a collective bargaining agreement? Well, we have to have majority rule when we have it, but we don't need it at all. So if you go to the pre-1937 arrangements, the 1935 arrangements, uh, what happened was an employer would put out a set of terms. Uh, they were unilaterally stated, and a worker that liked them would accept them, and a worker that didn't like them would not accept them. And essentially, if all the workers who signed on to this agreement had decided to play by this rule, you don't have the problem of dissenters at all, and there's no need for coercion. And indeed, in the most controversial aspect of this arrangement – in 1917 or so, in a case called Hitchman Cole, the great Justice Malon Pitney, we always come back to him, and said that one of the conditions that the employer could put on the contract would be that if you decide to work for me, you will not join a union or promise to join a union while you're in my employ, although I understand it would be an illegal restraint to trade on me to tell you after you quit that you could not join a union. And under these circumstances, you have perfect unanimity. And if you have perfect unanimity, you don't get agency shop problems or anything else. Well, if you look at the political situation, the reason we have majority rule is that it turns out that you cannot have uh, perfect unanimity because political governments do not work by simply holding out a shingle and saying, you know, if you want to come to work for me in the United States, this is what you have to agree to. These monopolies are not great based on voluntary association. They're based on territorial arrangements. You force everybody in because otherwise you get chaos top of the government, and they can say more or less what they want. But even here, I think one sorts to be very careful about what's going on because pure democracy never works under a system that the government can say whatever it wants and do whatever it wants whenever it wants to do it. There's always going to be the question about uh, minority rights under these circumstances. And so it would be utterly crazy if the government says, well, we require you to pay taxes and we can tell you what to do. And by the way, one of the things you can't do is protest what we want to say. Uh, so in the political context, government has to speak. It's an necessity situation. In the union context, the necessity only arises uh, because we decided to impose the bargaining arrangement on it. So in the political situation, since unanimity is not possible, uh, then you can see why all these difficulties have to be faced. But the argument on the other side is you don't have to face these. And so once you decide to put the union in, and that's a huge abridgment of the rights of people who don't wish to work for a union or join a union in order to work for an employer, then you're in a second best world. And the second best world says we may be able to force you to renounce your rights to negotiate directly with an employer of your choice, but we're still going to give you the right to resist uh, compelled association. So I think that argument is really rather much overclaiming it. And note that it's an argument which rejects a boot because a boot basically did a balancing test and said compelled speech arguments work for the political part of this and they don't work with respect to the bargaining part of this. And the Bolick position says a basically compelled speech doesn't work anywhere in the entire situation. So he's taking a position which is trying to unravel the difference between these two kinds of speech but in the opposite direction, saying in effect that the union could do anything what it wants and risks, I think, general real 
political upset if this sort of thing were uh, to be taken. Richard, the Janus case is a case about public sector unions. Help our listeners think through how different the legal or policy considerations are around public sector unions versus their private sector equivalents. One of the great weaknesses of Justice Stewart's opinion in a boot. What Stewart said is to ordinary appearances, you work for a city, it's pretty much the same thing as working for a private union. So he didn't think that the rules should differ much one way or the other. Uh, most people, when they think about it, said, wait a second, there's something clearly very suspect about this. If you go back to the 1935 Act, it turns out that public unions were exempt, uh, that if public employers were exempt, they could not be unionized. And indeed, to this day, there is no right to unionize uh, public employees under federal law. What happened is in 1962, John Kennedy gave by executive order, no less, uh, limited rights to collective bargaining for uh, federal employees, and then many states, including New York with its Taylor Act, rapidly followed and did exactly the same thing. Well, what's the difference? When you're bargaining with a private employer, the relationship is quite unambiguously adversarial. I don't want you to unionize me. I don't want you to take more money than I have to pay. My shareholders to whom I owe a fiduciary duty do not like this situation. I'm duty-bound to bargain hard, but only within the framework of the law. And so the way the rules start to emerge essentially is that the negotiations take place, and if you reach an impasse, the workers can strike. On the one hand, the employer could lock you out. You get yourself into the public union sector, particularly with things like transportation unions and classes, and two things start to happen. First, it turns out the union to some extent is on both sides of the table. Because what it uses its political dollars for is to elect legislatures who are congenial to its positions and to threaten those who are not congenial with its uh, positions um, with various kinds of opposition. And so if you're taking a place like California or New York, the unions could have an enormous impact on the way in which the government starts to work. And if it does that, then in effect the nature of the bargaining dynamics are completely different because that adversarial relationship is not there. People were aware of this in 1960s when they decided that they were going to let public unions organize. And so what they said is you can't go out on strike, which already is a conceded difference between public and private unions. But then they said you have to agree to compulsory arbitration. And there was a thought that this particular choice in remedies might stem the difference. But if you look at the landscape today and see the huge problems with public pensions and similar kinds of operations, it's quite clear uh, that the difference between a strike and compulsory arbitration really does not matter that much. In compulsory arbitrations, the unions do very well. And often they threaten to go out strike on strike illegally, and they say nothing's going to happen to us if we do that way. Uh, so the system essentially, you can trace the basic disruption of the pension system and a lot of other problems in public education, prison guards and so forth, to the rise of public unions. And so they are really different. But the odd question is, when you're talking about the compelled speech issue, you know, are these particular differences really important? And I guess the answer is that they are because it was on the asserted similarity between the two cases that Justice Stewart rests his that collective bargaining in the public sector is pretty much like collective bargaining in the private sector. And so, therefore, we did not have to worry about the kinds of conflicts of interest, two-sided bargaining, union on both sides of the table uh, that we have today in the public sector. 
The final question that I'll put to you, the handicapping thus far of this case has largely been that the court will rule in favor of Janice, that Abood will be overturned, uh, partially because the court had a very similar case a few years ago that looked like it was going uh, to be 5-4 in that direction, and then it deadlocked when Justice Scalia died. Most legal pundits, of course, now think that Justice Gorsuch is going to provide that missing fifth vote. If that happens, what should we expect the long-term consequences to be? both for public sector unions narrowly and more broadly for the public sector? Well, I think it's complicated. Uh, most people, when they looked at the argument, said that the four liberals were still set in concrete in their particular position. The people who spoke on the other side, the most conspicuous surprise was Justice Kennedy. And the most famous part of the exchange was uh, a guy named Frederick, who was representing the union, said, you know, if we can't get the money, then we will lose our political influence. And Kennedy said precisely so, essentially, saying it's a good thing that you lose your political influence. So he probably is the leader of the pack on the other side, which is something of a surprise because sometimes he's the man in the middle. Gorsuch said nothing. And so one would have to infer his position. And I think he probably did that quite tactfully because he did not want to come out and in early ways because that would then seal the 5-4 thing, wanted to hear what the argument's about, and then we'll vote. I think the collective wisdom is correct. I think it will be a 5-4 decision. I think the question will be how narrowly it is going to be drawn. And one of the interesting things, of course, it's hard to draw this narrowly because the facts are so simple. A guy says, I pay $45 a month in dues and I don't want to do it. I mean, it's not real complicated. And they say, well, you don't have to pay it. And it's hard to distinguish other unions because the pattern that you're talking about here is not complicated. It's perfectly standard. So some years ago when I had a case called Quinn against um, Harris – uh, the government, in order to give in Illinois, again, where Janice is an Illinois case, in order to make unionism work, is it took family members who took care of their own children who had sick or retarded or something of the sort. And they said, you are all employees of the state solely for the purposes of collective bargaining, but not for anything else, which is a joke. And that's a farce. That you could strike down and still preserve the standard arrangement. But in this case, it's not a joke. This is exactly the way the world works everywhere. So you have to predict that they're all full. Next question is what's going to be the response? There's a huge debate over this in the empirical literature. This is my guess. The first thing that will happen is that public union leaders will adapt. They still have reasons that they want these folks. And so what they'll do is they'll be a little bit more responsive, a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more concerned with what's going on in an effort to keep the union members in. And you know what? I think it will work to at least some extent. They will also, I think, be less obdurate against the employers because they know if they start calling strike, that's exactly the kind of issues that are going to break them apart. But on the other hand, I do think that there is a lot of mounting dissatisfaction with many public unions. They're regarded as oligarchical and distant, uh, so they may well pull out. That's more or less what happened when the collective bargaining arrangement in Wisconsin was altered by legislation. There was a sharp drop in uh, the membership of the AFSCME operation, and my guess is that we will see a substantial decline. But if the unions stay, they will behave differently. If they decline, the districts will work differently. It turns out there's some real complications that remain because the pensions already negotiated may well be vested rights. And if they're vested rights, then unraveling of this situation will only take place going forward. But a lot of the accumulated liabilities for existing workers may still be in place.
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter, at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.